0: Welcome back to Catalyze, a podcast produced by the Moorhead Kane Foundation at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm your host and producer, Caroline Leland. This is the last episode of our first season, and we are sad to have it end. But don't despair, we'll be back soon enough. And this week, we've got a very special guest for you to close out the season. David Gardner, Moorhead Kane class of 1988. David is co-founder of a whimsical financial services company called The Motley Fool, which he established in 1993 along with his brother and a friend. David is incredibly successful at picking stocks, and he's known among the Moorhead Kane community for a legendary seven talk at the 2009 Alumni Forum, where he picked seven stocks alumni should have invested in right then. If someone in the audience had invested $1,000 across those seven stocks that day, they'd have more than $13,000 today. And that's not a fluke or a lucky break. David picks successful stocks like these literally every day. In our conversation, we talked about the story of The Motley Fool, how David learned about stocks, and what he wishes everyone knew about financial investing. David's energy is palpable and his optimism is irresistible. This was a fun conversation by any standards, and way more fun than you'd expect a conversation about stocks to be. Buckle up, folks. Here is David Gardner.
1: My name is David Gardner, and 25 years ago, quite by mistake, I helped found a company called The Motley Fool. And initially we said we're going to educate, to amuse, and to enrich, and we launched on AOL back when AOL was The thing in the mid nineteen nineties, and we gave investment advice, and that's what we've been doing for the last twenty five years. But the purpose of our company has changed a little bit, and AOL is no longer around anymore. And the world has really embraced the internet, and so it's been a tremendous twenty five years. And I am chief rule breaker, which means I am not the CEO, which has always been my choice. I've never wanted to be a (laughs) CEO, but it and I don't have many direct reports, but I am a thought leader at our company, and I am. I'm a stock picker who's um, demonstrated that he can beat the market, and that if you follow us, you can too. In a world that often says that that would just be luck, that monkeys throwing darts are as good as any stock picker because it would all just be luck. And that's probably one of the great conventional wisdoms of our time that I think is wrong headed. So the motley fool defiantly kind of stands in the face of that and says, You absolutely can beat the stock market. And it's not in the way you think. It's not by being a crazy trader or taking silly risk. It's actually about being more patient than Wall Street. And it's about investing in companies that you think will make the world better, not cynically just putting your money in whatever you think is going to go up. And when you put those two things together, I think you, me, and everybody else listening can beat the stock market. And that's valuable.
0: When you say you started The Motley Fool by mistake, what do you mean by that?
1: Well. I had been writing for Louis Rukeyser, who had a long-running show on PBS called Wall Street Week. And he had a newsletter. And I, as a writer, got the back page of that newsletter. And I would pick things that I thought were helpful for readers. And what would come back, edited each month to me, would be the first half of what I'd written, abridged, with all color, any fun, any personality completely stripped from it. And then the second half would be a freshly written, piece that was kind of contradicting anything that I'd said in the first half, because the idea was, we're we're journalists here. We're going to try to balance things out. So you need to give the pros and the cons. So the feedback I was getting is, David, you're just giving the pros. (laughs) And so I started to realize this is not a job for me. And so I quit that job after six months at about the age of 25, already married. And I thought, what what should I do? And and so we just started. My brother, Tom and I and his friend, Eric Rideholm, they'd both gone to Brown. So I was the Tar Heel among the three. Uh, we just started a newsletter. We called it The Motley Fool. I pulled the name from Act 2, Scene 7 of As You Like It. I was an English major, you know, creative writing major at Carolina. And so I just thought, what what should we call this? And I found a simple quote, a fool, a fool, I see a fool in the forest, a motley fool, Act 2, Scene 7 of As You Like It, which by the way, is the greatest scene of all uh, Shakespeare celebrating foolishness and the court jester, the the fellow who could tell the king or queen the truth without having his head lopped off, the only people who could do that in the Elizabethan court, uh, and they used humor to tell the truth. And so I just kind of loved that conceit. And so we went with that, and Caroline, it was $48 a year. Very few of our friends were subscribing. Largely, it was our parents' friends because they probably felt sorry for us and paid us $48 a year. We threw some stock picks in The Motley Fool. But um, without going back over the entire boring superhero origin story of The Motley Fool. I'll just shortcut it and say that we had uh, we did an April Fool's joke where we kind of lampooned what was happening at the time, which is kind of pump and dump penny stock, bad advice on the internet, people telling you to buy this or that penny stock, and they're probably selling their shares to you as they do it. And so, we lampooned that and got written up in the Wall Street Journal and in Forbes. And we were just paying customers on AOL when we did that. And so, AOL said about eight months into our print newsletter, they said, hey, would you guys like to bring this online? Let's have lunch. And so by mistake, (laughs) to get around to the original question you asked, by mistake, The Motley Fool came online and by mistake became a business. We didn't actually think we would ever hire anybody. I I didn't know what the word entrepreneur, I think. I don't think I knew what it meant when I left Chapel Hill. But indeed, we we did start a company and I'm so glad that we did.
0: At what point did you realize you were good at At picking stocks. Was that a a skill that you developed intentionally? Was it something that you stumbled upon or feel like it was an, an innate instinct? Or how did you get good at that? How did you realize you were good at that?
1: So I had a couple of years right after Carolina where I didn't have a job. And the reason I didn't have a job is because I'd had a dad who had invested for me from birth. And at the age of 18, when I turned 18, he said, here you go, David. This is all you're ever getting from me. Anything that I have left when I die is going to go to your kids. So don't screw up. And he was a very loving and fun dad. And one of our iconic stories I've told many times was when we would go, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And in Georgetown, we went to the Safeway, which was right near our house. And uh, we'd go in and he'd say, hey, kids, look, chocolate pudding. Maybe I'm eight. My brother Tom's six. Chocolate pudding. We own some of the shares of that company that makes that chocolate pudding. Let's go get more chocolate pudding. And so, from early days, he was making it fun and making us aware that we can be part owners of the things around us, the products and services that we love. And so, he was coaching us about the stock market and getting us to think like investors and embodying that himself, acting for the long term and making really good decisions. He was he is, uh, to this day, an excellent investor. So, that was modeled for us. But When I went to college, it wasn't a real focus of mine. And when I came out of college, uh, I did have, since I'd had college paid for, thank you, John Motley Moorhead, I I, I did have extra cash, so I did not have to go right away and get a job. But two years later, um, I didn't have much to show for myself. I was about to marry my college sweetheart, and that was my fellow Moorhead, Margaret McKinnon, uh, which has been one of the great things of my life. I met my wife at UNC Chapel Hill, but I was getting married without a job and I didn't feel like I'd really achieved much. However, we were living in Charlottesville at the time, and I was spending a lot of time clicking around local online bulletin boards, which is what we kind of called the internet before the internet. And I was starting to figure out the medium, and I was tracking my stock portfolio that my dad had given me that I had managed since the age of 18. And I was doing well with it, but I was fascinated by how to do better. I loved the contrary thinking, often using numbers that leads you to better outcomes than what the world is practicing. I really just think of myself as a gamer, but one of the best games of all is the game of the stock market. Because when you win, in contrast to the, your NFL fantasy football team, when you win this game, you really have financial independence and you have the opportunity really to improve the world in ways that you probably couldn't have dreamed at the start. So somewhere in my 20s, when we launched online, especially, I started to think that you know I, I'm a good investor. And I, I think I can make anybody who'll listen to me and follow us uh, a good investor.
0: I don't know if it was on a, a description of a podcast or on a blog, but I read something online where you had written about one of the big uh, draws of, of investing is that you get to reap more benefits later than if you had just spent the money So true. today. So when, when thinking about that, um, do you think that enough people realize that And or, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about when it comes to the the stock market and and finance and investing?
1: So, I wish everybody in the world knew a few basic things about money. I, I know a lot of people hearing me right now do already know these things, but part of what we're trying to do at The Motley Fool is to help the whole world invest better. So, here are a few of the things I'm thinking of. First, I wish everybody knew that you have to become a saver, not a borrower at some point, and it's really hard with student debt, but you're gonna have to become a saver. And it almost doesn't matter how much is coming in, because I've seen people that you and I might think of as low income, and they are net savers, which is a remarkably hard thing to do, and always those are my heroes. But for many of us working professionals, we really should be net savers, and that means foregoing when necessary, things that you would have spent the money on. And so, number one, net saver, number two, Put those savings in the stock market and leave them there and just keep piling it on. The stock market has risen approximately 10% a year over the last century. I'm going to say that just one more time. The stock market has risen about 10% per year for the last 100 years. And so, that is a train that you want to get on at the first stop you find yourself at. So, if you're hearing me now and you've just graduated Carolina this past spring, I sure do want you to be getting your money there because the compounding power of 10% and then 10% again over and over is one of the more awesome things that I've seen on planet Earth. So that's number two. And then number three is your money should be in touch with who you are. So one of the things that I do at The Molly Fool is I pick stocks. And I've done that every single month of the year. And I've been doing that for more than a decade now. I keep stats on everything I'm doing. But most important of all to me is that I'm making so many different stock picks that, Caroline, if you were looking at it, I wouldn't say, hey, you have to follow every one of them. You don't have to do that. In fact, I would encourage you to look at what I'm doing and say, which are the stock picks, which are the companies that you really feel some kinship with, that you might admire, that you'd like to work there if you could, because those are the ones that you should be putting in your portfolio. So I'm picking stocks for hundreds of thousands of people, but each one of them has their own story their own viewpoint and their own view of how the world can get better and so one of my i hope one of my legacy lines is make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future and if i can add a fourth to possibly an overlong answer i might say something like don't just mail it in don't just put your money in funds and disconnect from it and say uh, i don't know what's going on with that but i sure hope my 403b or 401k is doing okay I think you should always own at least one stock. You should be having some fun, even even if it's just with a small percentage of what you have in an IRA or in your own separate account. I think you should be picking a great company like, well, here are seven that I picked nine years ago at the forum and Ebix, Disney, Baidu, Intuitive Surgical, Take-Two Interactive, Amazon and Netflix. That was the seven talk that I gave nine years ago. And, um, those have been a spectacular performers. I'm not nearly as good as the performance of those stocks in my seven talk. But if you're going to bring it, you know, for your your crew, my tribe is always going to be the Moorhead Kane tribe. Then I'm glad that that day I picked the stocks that I did because they have rocked it. But anyway, so I think that we should be investing in a way that is consonant with who we are and where the world's headed.
0: And for lis- for listeners who don't know, Seven Talks are how the moorhead Kane Foundation has branded uh, talks given by alumni at the Alumni Forum. And David, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to to kind of ask you what <laughs> what is it like being someone who gave one of the most famous Seven Talks in Morehead Kane Alumni Forum history? Was that something did you expect that type of success from the stocks you picked? Were you at all nervous that those wouldn 't turn out the way you were predicting, or what 's that like looking back
1: so the funniest thing about it is that that morning I woke up really early i don 't wake up early normally i 'm a lazy slug abed i don 't like to have to even get up at nine thirty a m if I can go to ten even on weekdays. so I was up early that morning because I felt a lot of pressure speaking in front of such an admired august group of people so I scrapped my entire talk at about 6:30 a.m. I realized what I had from yesterday just isn't going to work. So I started furiously putting it together. I knew one thing I was going to pick a stock with each of the points that I made. And that's what I've always done when I've spoken publicly is I try to make a point about the world, about business or about the stock market and then I tag a stock to it and I say, "Let's all follow it going forward because I believe the points that I've made in front of you" And the stocks that we're picking, I believe they're going to beat the stock market over the next five plus years. If that sounds like a long term time frame, good, because that's the only time frame that should matter. And so, uh, so funny enough, I guess I scrapped my whole talk. So I was kind of winging it. But the stocks have have been remarkable. So I mentioned an otherwise obscure company that I don't even follow anymore, Ebix, E-B-I-X. It was at 20 and a half that day. October 2009, and today it's at 78. So 20 and a half to 78. And here's the good news, Caroline that's the worst performer among the seven. So so the best one was Netflix. It was at $7.88 that day, and it's now at 378. But Amazon was at 124, and it's at 2009 today. So I was really happy to truly destroy it out there for my Moorhead uh, brethren and sisters.
0: And I think somewhere I read that someone had figured out it might have been you someone had figured out if an individual in the crowd that day had invested $5,000 across those seven stocks then they would have x amount of money today. Do you know what that I can I can put this into the um my totally. conclusion at the end of the conversation?
1: Sure. Well, I'll let you do some math. And each person could kind of plug in their own number in terms of whether you had a $1,000 or $10,000. But um, the stock market since that day is up 172%. And the average pick among those seven is up 1,097 points above that. So since I'm at my Mac, I can just do the really quick math here. So 172, 1097. So the average stock is up um, 13 times in value. So whatever you started with, you'd be up 13 times from that uh, nine years later.
0: That's It's really motivating to hear numbers like that. And so, for someone who to whom your stock picks feel like magic, how would you explain that process to someone to demystify how you're able to pick stocks that outperform the market?
1: So, I would say, at the risk of being oversimple, but hey, that's what we do in a 30-minute format or so. I'm (laughs) going to (laughs) oversimplify. But really quickly, I would say, first, let's make sure that we have found a company that is an innovator. More than anything, the companies that I'm always looking for and the next stock pick that I'm going to make, whatever it is next month, and I'm not sure what it's going to be yet, that's probably going to be the innovator in its field. So across all fields, and not just for profit, but not for profit as well, I'm always asking who's innovating because I know how hard it is to innovate, especially at scale. But when you are disrupting an industry, when you're David showing up and Goliath doesn't like you very much, AOL used to be that way back in the day. People were very cynical about the idea that the internet would work. In fact, one of my early interviews, it was on CNN, and they said, coming back, we're going to have somebody, it was me, somebody who thinks you will use your credit card over the internet back after this. That's where the world was back then. Literally, people didn't think that e-commerce could work. But AOL was a believer, I was certainly a believer, and so AOL, even though it's not around in the form that it once was and not as relevant today, was such a rule breaker. And that's the phrase that I use with that point number one. The innovators are rule breakers. They look at the status quo, the rules are all set up for Goliath to win, and if you play by those rules, guess what? Goliath's gonna win. But we're gonna find the companies that are gonna break the rules. Number two, you probably are looking in the eye of the CEO, he or she is probably a visionary, You'd love to think that they're invested in their own company, and so you're you're going to be investing in people like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos, right? The real visionaries, the people who really shape the world today and will shape it into the future. And I believe more often than not, for good and a, and a better world. So that's number two, and then number three, probably we're we're looking at a company that you, you hope's going to be around ten plus years from now. I'm never thinking, uh, I'll pick this stock, and I hope it'll double over the next year, and then we're going to get out. In fact, almost every stock that I've picked, I've held for at least five years. And more often than not, I'm selling not because I wanted to sell the shares, but because somebody bought them out. And so, we have to give our stock over. For example, Marvel was one of my superstar stock picks in the early 2000s. But unfortunately, Disney bought Spider-Man and bought the Avengers and all the rest. So, um, we still own Disney stock today. But more often than not, I'm selling not because I wanted to, but because somebody else bought our goods. So, that's a really short course. There's a lot more to it. I didn't talk about numbers at all. That's an mm-hmm. important thing to know as well. But, that's kind of how I do what I do.
0: Can I ask you a personal finance question?
1: You just did. No. Yes, please do.
0: <laughs> what, what percent of your net worth is in the stock market right now?
1: So, the minority of my net worth is in the stock market for a very simple reason, and that's that the majority of my net worth is tied up in my company. So, uh. My brother, Tom, and I are the majority owners of our company, and it's been an amazing journey that we don't have time to talk about today. Uh, I've probably t- talked about it sometimes when I go back and talk in Chapel Hill, but we have, after taking in $56 million of venture capital in the late 1990s, we ended up, after a really tough 2001, deciding that, yeah, we want to keep going, even though a lot of our dot-com brethren are dead or dying, we want to keep going. And in fact, what we're going to do is we're going to pay back all of our VCs and buy them out. And over the course of the following, let me see, it was 13 years, we took all of our profits, and with interest, we paid back out our VCs. And so today, we are a fully autonomous company, majority owned by our family, but minority owned by all of our employees. Because when you come to work for The Motley Fool, we give you some shares. Everybody's invested in The Fool. So, it's kind of an amazing story. That, But I think the simple personal finance question you're asking is, you know, how invested am I in the stock market? And the answer is that everything outside of The Motley Fool for me is in the stock market 100% at all times. I don't really hold cash. I don't mind it when the market drops. That's going to happen one year and three historically. And that's just part of living a life as an investor, but I do have a substantial amount in the stock market. And that makes sense because I love it. And I think that you have to have skin in the game at all times. And so, um, the stocks that I recommend, the seven that I just read off for you earlier from my Moorhead reunion 2009, the forum picks, those are companies that I own, most of them that are still around. And uh, so, yeah, my money is always where my mouth is. All
0: right. Well, we're um, almost out of time, but I have one Kind of a big double whammy question for you, which, which is throughout your career, in your work, what have been the biggest challenges that you've faced or had to overcome? And on the flip side, what motivates you? What, what keeps you going?
1: So the biggest challenge that I've ever faced in life was 2001 when The Motley Fool went from 435 employees to 85 employees in nine months. And those happened in three separate layoffs. And each one was about 100 people. And each one, we thought, well, that's all we're going to have to do. Surely, we're not going to have to do that again. And that hurt a lot. I'd been on the cover of Fortune magazine five years before. And there we are, basically sucking wind as a company at a really hard time, not just for our company, but for our world at large, with some towers falling in our country and the stock market literally closing for a few days. It was a horrendously bad year. So, I learned so much that year and I sure hope never to learn those lessons again because that was really hard. What's something that excites me or motivates me? I mean, I I truly just want to get as many people believing as possible. And believing takes a number of different forms for me. But in this particular context, what you and I have been talking about, I want people to believe that the world is good. And you know what? Here's some really good news. It's getting better And here's some even better news if you're an investor, and that is that most people don't think that. And so they're probably not invested. And therefore, part of the way to win every game is to be the one who's acting differently, to be David when Goliath says, the world's not getting better. And so all of a sudden, when it does, we will profit even more. And it's not just a story of 2018. That was the story in 1918, and fifteen eighteen, a wonderful book called *The Rational Optimist* by Matt Ridley makes it really clear that we humans, for decades and eras and centuries, have thought that the world's going to get worse. Thomas Malthus, and uh, and and they've been wrong. And so today, we have longevity is up one third over where it was fifty years ago. For example, that's pretty good news. And and there are all kinds of measures. And by no means is the world perfect. Sadly, it's it's horribly broken. But it's a lot less broken than it was 200 years ago, and it's going to be better over the next 50 years. So I'm excited by that.
0: What a beautiful note to end on. Well, in the last few episodes of Catalyze, I have ended on uh, by talking about The Forum, which is coming up in just about a month, less, less than a month from um, actually really only a couple of weeks from when this episode will air. But sadly, I know that you are not able to come to this year's forum uh, it due to a family commitment. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I, I'm heartbroken because since the very first one, Brad Ives with his wonderful vision to get us all going, I've loved it. And it's a special op- It only comes up every three years, but it just so happens that our youngest, who is a sophomore at Vanderbilt, That is his fall break. And so because we don't see the young fella that much anymore, I just couldn't justify uh, not spending that time in Washington, D.C. with him as opposed to going down and being with all my friends in Chapel Hill. So because I know this is our youngest and this is his college, I'm pretty sure that's the last time I'm going to not be able to come. But I'm really, truly heartbroken because I love the experience
0: we appreciate that you'll be with your family and that will be totally worth it but we'll definitely miss you at the forum and uh and you're right we have um sold out Um, but for people who aren't able to come we this year we are planning on offering live streaming of some if not all of the panels and talks at this year's forum so that is a little preview a little a little sneak preview announcement we haven't worked out all the details yet but i just wanted you to know that and listeners to know that anyone who's not able to be at the forum there there will be at least some opportunity to tune in virtually so um that's our spectacular yeah it's sort of (laughs) consolation prize seems kind of harsh but we're really sad that everyone can't come and we want to be able to include people even um, even when our space doesn't allow it
1: well I'll say this my son Zach who will be back from college that weekend tends to sleep late so I think I can probably tap into the live stream while the young fella is sleeping and still enjoy some of what's happening
0: great well I'm glad you'll be able to join at least at least virtually You've been listening to Catalyze, a podcast produced by the Moorhead Cain Foundation at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. To learn more about The Motley Fool, visit www.fool.com. Yes, that is their domain name. Scholars and alumni can find David on the Moorhead Cain Network. And anyone can listen to his podcast, which is called Rule Breaker Investing. As always, a huge thank you to composer Creighton Irons, Morehead Kane Class of 05, for creating our fantastic theme music. You can learn about Creighton and his work at CreightonIrons.com. That's C R E I G H T O N I R O N S.com. Finally, don't forget to give us your feedback on Catalyze. Your thoughts are especially important now as we're about to jump into designing our second season. Email me, Caroline at MoorheadKane.org. Thanks for following along with this first season of Catalyze. We've loved hearing from each of you who have reached out and we've loved getting to know our alumni better through these interviews. We can't wait to get started on the next season soon. Until then.